Hey, this is Dave Fryer. Welcome to the Reluctant Agilist. This is Take 66. Mike Vizos and I are battling through a bunch of technical issues, but Mike, thank you for your patience and for making time this afternoon. Right back at you, my friend. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited for our conversation. So Mike's got a lot of experience in this stuff. He's been in the space for a while. He's done a lot of amazing work helping people learn how to use different agile practices. He's co-author of one of the earliest books on scaling Agile. He creates the audio version of the Scrum Guide. He's working on an interactive version of the Scrum Guide. I think, is that the way you're explaining it to people? Yep, uh, yep. It's, it actually is up and running at interactivescrumguide.com. Ah, all right. So there you go. All those of you taking the exam, you can go to Rick's website and find the answers to your questions. Um, but we're going to talk today about a couple of things, and, and one of the ones that I want to touch on is something that you explained to me that that you're doing with your consulting, one of the areas you focus on, and that is working with executives. So how would you, how do you explain the work that you do with them? Uh, most of the time it is I help teams work better together. Okay. And a lot of times as you realize, and probably a lot of the listeners realize, is we get into maybe coaching or being a scrum master, product owner in an organization, and the leadership team doesn't seem to be playing well together. So I have a real life situation I'm going to present to you, and I'm hoping we can talk through it a little bit and then get into some of the first team stuff that you've been been working on. But I'm in a PO class last week. Um, People in there are really excited to be there, fully engaged in what was going on. We're working through all the different problems. And one of the issues that all of them were experiencing was that um, they're all on teams that have way too much work to do. More work is constantly being jammed into the funnel and they're struggling to prioritize because they don't have any clarity from management on what the most important things are. And management is just kind of punting and saying, it's all in top priority. You have to do all of it even though the reality of it is that's not going to be possible, but they can't get management, the managers to agree amongst themselves. Um, they're battling each other politically in the organization and they can't figure out what the most important thing to do is. Um, so I guess the first question I have is if you're in a room with a bunch of executives who are, who are in that situation, how do you have that conversation with them about helping them see the damage that they're causing for the teams? First off, I don't think you're alone in this. If you're on a team <laughs> that's feeling that today, yeah, uh, I am seeing that currently also, and okay. have you know for for a long time. And teams that are experiencing this, this is not your fault. It really isn't. It's a lot of times when I get called in to the executive teams because I'm I am an outsider. Yeah. I can go in and have the tough conversations or what I'll even call a come to Jesus meeting yeah. and say, put on your big kid pants and prioritize. Now yeah. they look at me like, hmm, we're doing that. Yeah. And then we'll look Everything's around. Everything's in P1. It's all priority. The wasteland of all the priority ones, right? And yeah. then get to really what is it that we have to do. Okay. So this that similar I have similar messaging to the students, which is just you have to go back to these people and tell them you can't do work if they're not going to tell you what the most important thing is. And that's their whole job for the company. I mean, Absolutely. To set clarity around that. 
Yep. And, and this is also where you need to lean into, you know, maybe the scrum master and product owner working together. Cause remember the scrum master and product owner are on the same team Yeah, and it doesn't have to be one person, like, you know, taking the brunt of this for the developers. So one of the things that I kind of go to in my head with this is, I mean, I, I agree with you, like they should join forces. I think in this case, there were some people where they had the PM or sorry, PO slash scrum master, which makes it even harder. But mm -hmm. there's a part of me that wants to have a little bit of empathy for the the leaders in the organization. And I'm curious about why, why they don't have the safety they need or whatever it is they need to be able to say like, okay, this over that. I mean, I'm assuming that there's some reason why they're not able to make that decision. Is that, do you often see that there's just, there's fear or is it, is there some other thing? Oh, there's, there's fear uh, a lot of times, especially when, you know, you look around at the current times and people, even at the executive level, are, are looking out for their own jobs too. Yeah. And a lot of times how they've gotten that high up in an organization is to basically kill your peers and optimize for your departments. So, so now you're up at the executive table and really trying to make your department or your group look better than the rest of them when that is completely opposite of what's really needed at the executive team level. Yeah, especially if all the things that are being built are coupled together and you know, they need all of them to succeed. Absolutely. Okay. So other than telling the people on these teams, like you're not alone and it's not your fault, it's like mom and dad, it's their job to get along, not yours. Um, is there anything that they can do? Because these people felt, I mean, they were excited about what we were talking about, but I could also tell that the, there was a sort of sense of hopelessness because it's beyond their pay grade. I mean, they can't set strategic priority across the organization, but they can't yeah. live without it. Yep. And, and if really there is this mushroom cloud of non-prioritization from any leadership, just start to do something. Don't forget, keep your iteration short and deliver things. Yeah. Now, if you get a chance to have some conversations with the executive team or with any senior leader, really, one of the concepts that I've really started to dig into is a book from a guy named Patrick Lencioni back in 2012, 2014, where he has a video and a really good book on this concept of first team. And really with the video and book, he talks about the job of an executive team is to work together and not try to optimize at your department or team levels, right? You have to set the strategic direction. And if that doesn't work, we see a lot of what's happening today. Yeah. And that when I went through that stuff, it seemed almost counterintuitive to me, especially if I'm coming from a traditional background. I mean, like you said, that's how I got the corner office was by killing everyone around me. Um, and now you're telling me it's not Survivor anymore. It's pandemic. We all have to play the game pandemic. We all have to survive together. Um, mm -hmm. That's a hard turn for a lot of people to make. It is. And Typically on the executive team, if they're not all rowing in the same direction, 
it's going to be up to like the most senior leader in that team to make a call to probably get rid of or reshuffle some of the bad actors or toxic people on the team. Okay. And that is hard to do. So that that person that's at the top of the food chain is going to have to figure out a way to create this first team where the people that that they're working with understand that their primary job is to make it easier for the people below them on the org chart to actually get their work done. Yep. And if they don't believe this, guess what? None of the stuff that you're doing is going to work. It's going to matter. Yeah. That's a hard thing to say to people in a class. I mean, like I, mm-hmm. I get to sometimes these places in the classroom, the only advice I have is quit, <laughs> go somewhere else because it's not going to work here. But, and I never want to, you know, suggest to anybody that they should do that. But if the whole system is set up a fighting against what you're trying to do, I mean, what hope do you have? Absolutely. And many of the organizations that you and I work with, Dave, are not set up to do this, right? They they want to say all the buzzword compliance things and be happy and talk about, yay, we're all loving and working together, but it's not happening, right? The proof really is, are you delivering working product services or software to your end users and customers? Are you delighting them? Yeah. But what are so in, in healthier organizations, maybe maybe just to make it a little less <laughs> despondent, what are some mm-hmm. of the things that you see would be an indicator of health and clarity at the executive level that should make the people on the teams feel like, okay, this is a good place for me to be? The executive team doesn't just talk buzzword bingo of right. trust. Trust really is it. And if you look at the, you know, the five scrum values, right? The the focus, openness, respect, commitment, and courage. If you don't have those, again, it doesn't work. So it's almost your your question is like, how can you tell if it's a good place? Yeah. If those scrum values are being lived, yeah. really. So I'm guessing then that an organization that does their annual planning where they plan sometime in November, they start planning the 150 projects they're going to do the next year. They finish that plan by February. By September, they've narrowed it down to like four and they finish one. I'm guessing that that's not an example of what you're talking about. Correct. (laughs) So, all right. So let's say that I'm somebody on a team. I'm a PO. And I'm, I've got a meeting with my boss. Um, what kind of advice can you give to me in terms of how I have that conversation that helps them see like, this is not the right way to do this? As a product owner, having a conversation with your boss, have empathy for your boss, first of all. Okay. Right, because they probably know it's a crappy situation. So really, maybe even opening with that stance might be helpful. Say, I get it. I know it's tough. Here is what I recommend we do. Like, go with a solution instead of adding to the problem. Or creating more friction for them. I mean, they're getting it from above. If you're bringing it from below, that's probably not going to make them want to be supportive of what you're trying to do. Correct. Okay. 
Have you ever seen anybody like a PO sit down with the executive and, and almost sort of coach them into techniques for prioritization or at least ways to ask the question at the highest strategic level to figure out what, like what the most important thing is? Because this place, there wasn't any clear for most of the teams. There was no clear understanding of this is how we know for the company what the right thing to do is. Yeah, you were talking a little bit earlier about maybe, you know, quit. That's a strong thing to do. Yeah. And and it's not usually an option for most people. Yeah. And it's not going to fix the problem, definitely. Correct. So running away from it. And I want to really highlight this. If you're listening, really, you, you're not going to run to a greener pasture somewhere else. Well, and the problem is probably going to follow you. And that's one of the things, because I I went through that. I did quit a place and it was five or six companies before I ended up at a place that was actually capable of doing the stuff I wanted to do. But I was just pushing the problem further down my path. Like Mm -hmm. I was still seeing it over and over again until I started to dig in and figure out how to actually solve it. And some of the learning that you have to continuously do around critical conversations, crucial conversations are important as a product owner. That's okay. So, so you could use it as an opportunity to practice Mm -hmm. getting better at helping management, see the things they're not seeing or helping guide them towards figuring out a way to explain to you this is why this thing is more important to the company than another thing if they're open to it okay and again i think we do see a lot of places dave that management or executive teams are in the i got this boat yeah and sometimes you got to bring in that outside person to basically take the bullet well, and that was one of my suggestions was like, if, so if I see people that are at the team level and, and a layer or two above them, there's a lack of alignment or a lack of agreement or different factions battling for control. Um, I don't see that as a, a battle that a team level person, one, should should have to take on, but two, has a strong chance of success in there, or at least as strong a chance of success as some person from outside who can walk in without worrying about pissing somebody off and getting fired because that's sort of their job when they're there. Correct. Is to create that or hold up the mirror and help them see the impact that they're having. And again, it's very easy to say, yep, we're going to do all this. Just like, yep, we're going to do Scrum or we're going to do Agile. We're going to do blah, blah. Yeah. Got to actually make the changes. So if I'm the senior, senior person who's got that first team, what are some things you've seen people do that help create that container that they can work within so that they can get the clarity they need to share with the people at the team level? A lot of the things that we teach in our in our product owner classes, right, about the tools. We, we give people lots and lots of tools. Yeah. Bring some of those tools up to the senior leadership team. You know, the marketplace of skills, that kind of thing, where the team can start, the team, the executive team can start looking at each other as peers instead of competition. Yeah. 
it, it, it feels to me almost like the people at the team level, like they're the kitchen and the restaurant and they can make any food that anybody asks for. But the people in the restaurant are just saying, we need food. Bring me food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and maybe, maybe there isn't clarity in the organization or maybe people are just scared. Of making, I mean, I've had that a lot where managers are afraid of making the wrong decision because of survival. Like you said, they need to feed their families. They don't want to lose their job. Um, but doesn't that actually just exacerbate the problem? Absolutely. Because again, there's no trust even at the very top. Yeah. And if I'm the person on the team, like you said, they should just do something that they could make a choice and it could be called out as the wrong choice by somebody who's trying to protect themselves. I mean, what do I do in that situation? I'm the PO. I decided we're going to do A instead of B because nobody would tell me what we needed to do. And maybe I even said, I'm going to do A unless somebody tells me different. Um, but when I deliver A, they're like, oh, really, you should have done B. I mean, is there a defense strategy for that that you, that you rec? I mean, like, what should I do in that situation? either case you're probably going to get blamed because remember that's really the the almost the dna of the executive team yeah i think when when i've made that choice or I, i've coached others to make that choice one of the things to remember is using scrum or other agile techniques you've got very short iterations let's say you deliver something and it's the wrong thing you didn't spend a year creating right. it you spent maybe two weeks maybe a month and the sprint review you show it and a lot of times what has happened in the past is executive teams will look at it and go oh my god you've captured lightning in a bottle how did you do that yeah right start changing the conversation by actually delivering something if you deliver the wrong thing it's a short iteration. Pick yourself up, have the retrospective about what can we do better, and then sprint planning the next time, maybe you'll get some engagement from above that says, no, this is the priority. I want this oranger or bluer. Yeah. Well, also, I think, and one of the things I've been trying to like push on in, when we talk about the sprint review is, if my team brings in a thing and management sees it and says, okay, that's not what we need, um, that's exactly why we have the sprint. I mean, that's the whole point of the meeting is to show the thing mm -hmm. and then be like, yeah, I, I thought this was going to be different than, than what you brought to me. Um, and it's a learning opportunity for both the teams and management in that there's a communication issue or a clarity issue that we can, like you said, dust ourselves off and kind of start over again. And it's not that big of a risk because it's a really short cycle. So maybe that, I'm going to check in with you on this. I'm thinking that if I'm that PO, then I can, there's two th very positive things that can come out of this situation. One, I can treat my interaction with that executive or that stakeholder as a practice opportunity to learn to get better at having these conversations. And I can find a way to reframe what happens in the sprint review so that if they don't like it, I can help them see like, good, you know, that's great. This is exactly what we were supposed to figure out. Um, and make it a positive thing. Absolutely. 
And this is why we also look at, we have to remember that the sprint reviews are not just, you know, plug and play demos, you know, phone it in. Yeah. Right. The, the real value of a sprint review is getting that kind of feedback from your stakeholders, any kind of feedback. But this is wrong is actually great feedback. Yeah. It's one of the thousand ways to not make the light bulb. We needed to find that before we get to the right one. Yep. Or, now, meanwhile, they're still, you know, s- sitting up in the, you know, C-suite or executive suite, spending, you know, nine months to a year figuring out the roadmap and the strategy and the vision and the blah, blah, blah. That really hasn't changed much since last year. Meanwhile, right, your teams are delivering things. So then at the team level, we're really doing everything we can for the organization to help it learn how to pick the things it wants to pursue and the things that they want to let go of because they're not really the most important thing to chase right now. Yeah, and pick one, right? Not 150 priority ones or 10 priority ones. So how do you have that conversation with stakeholders? When you walk into a place and they want to plan, you know, the 150 projects for the year and you know full well they don't have enough staff to deliver all those things, but everything to them is a P1. How do you guide them into accepting the reality of the fact that this is you just throwing money away because you're not going to build 150, you're going to build four. Focus on the four. If, if, and this is a big in bold caps, huge (laughs) font. If yeah. The executive team can see that. Yay. Most of the times they're going to fight back as hard as possible again, because the leadership at the team level is not looking themselves as the first team. They look at themselves as compartmentalized, right. And having to destroy each other to win. So we've got to figure out a way to get it to not be Lord of the flies anymore. And that's got to come from the top. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and many times it's almost like we start at the end of Lord of the Flies where you know the ship comes onto the onto the shore and all the kids are looking around going, What the hell did we just do? Yeah. <laughs> the shame. The horror. Yeah. And it's and it's not like shame and horror. It's the realization that okay, we've got to do something different. Well, all right. So there's I, there's a part of me that wants to push back on this because I think there should be a little bit of shame and horror at the senior level in that look at how we've treated these people. Look at how we've misused them and how we've not provided them with the things they need to be successful. I is agree. That, is that just a little too too much Catholic school in my background that I need everyone to feel guilty about something? I, I'm right there with you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so... Right. As an outsider going in, I can't own that for the senior leadership team. Okay. Depending on how they respond, absolutely. We can we can do some coaching mediation in very, very different ways. So well, maybe actually can we I would like to back up a little bit. How would you explain first team? Can you kind of walk through that? Sure. It's really the idea um that true leaderships true leaders prioritize supporting their fellow leaders over their direct reports and just let that one sink in. So if I am 
I don't know, the head of IT, then rather than worrying about the people that are directly beneath me on the org chart, I'm worrying first about the care of the people at the same level as me on, on the org chart. Correct. They're really, really responsible for their peers more than they are to their individual or second teams. Okay. So that's almost like a systems view of leadership then, right? How are we collectively creating the right things in this organization together as opposed to against each other? Yep. And, And it can be very fractal, right? Because a second team, right? The individual teams could actually be another first team that the team has to kick ass and take names on. Mm -hmm. So what does that do? You and I have talked in the past about servant leadership. I'm really curious as to your take on how, let's say I'm the head of IT, how that shifts my idea of servant leadership. If before, like a a perfect example, I did a class at Google one time, everybody went, went around the table, everybody introduced themselves. The last guy to introduce himself was the only guy with his feet up on the table. And everyone else started with their job title. And he was like, I'm Bob. I just do whatever they want me to do. He was the boss of everyone in the room. Um, and in his mind, that was servant leadership. But those are not his first concern, you're saying. His concern is getting his feet off the damn table and <laughs> like getting all of those really, you know, vice presidents of really important stuff working together. Okay. Like Have create you- the environment for that to happen. And that's not just like the infrastructure that is the emotional environment the communication environment the way that they see themselves as a team who deliver things together absolutely okay so that's a that's a pretty big mindset shift as well i mean how do people respond to this first team idea does it seem like a natural fit for them or are they like oh my gosh you're absolutely right or do they push back on it a lot of times they'll say oh no no we are we, we- we already we are a family here. No, you're not. <laughs> Except for Jones over there. Jones right. is really the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or it's that it's that you know the weird uncle that's you know what are they say? you know the weird uncle underneath the you know the 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 faucet right yeah. Um, as a senior leader, right, your job is to make sure that the team is operating together and rowing together. Because if they're all rowing in separate directions, is it even a surprise that the rest of the organization is a complete cluster? Yeah. Well, okay. So, and then if I am that PO who's working with the scrum master and a you know, development team, maybe my first team is all the other POs then as well, right? Would that fit? Yep. So if you look at it maybe as a, a as like a community of practice. Yeah. That might be a good place to start so that as POs or insert role or accountability here. Yeah. Right. You're all being able to scale the same message up from the different teams that you're on. Okay. Well, and if it is, if you're still not able to make any ch- to impact any change at the level above you, at least within the system of product owners in this case, or the community of practice of product owners, they can learn to negotiate amongst themselves to do their best to work through everything in spite of the fact that they're not getting clarity from above. 
Yeah. Okay. Which is in some ways kind of unfair and dysfunctional to put that on their backs, but um, I guess if that's the only way you can delight the customer, then maybe that's what you have to do. And do that without making the career limiting moves or knowing that you could get taken out back and shot. Mm -hmm. And if you are going to make career limiting moves, we should all make them together. Right. <laughs> I won't say that out loud. <laughs> I'm, I'm not recommending that anybody listening to this makes a career limiting move. I, I and, and I have to like stress that because like Dave, as you and I, as outsiders, a lot of times going in organizations, we're paid to take the bullet. Yeah. Right. This is why I won't go into an organization any longer, really at the director level or below. Like my contract has to be usually with the C-suite or maybe the senior vice president level. Like and why is that? Because it's harder to take me out back and shoot me without making it super duper visible at the director level, man, I am just one of the next redeployments. Yeah. Okay. So you, so it's not just that you need to be able to influence at the, at the necessary level to create the change, but you need to make sure that, that the visibility of them turning their nose up at the helpful ideas you're offering uh, and showing you the door like that is going to cause stress for them as well. It's pretty high mm -hmm. risk. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and that's a very different job than what most of the listeners here have today. Yeah. Well, I think also when we come in from the outside, I mean, like, it's really easy for me to be cavalier in class and be like, well, you should, you know, tell mm -hmm. them they have to give you priority. If they don't, well, maybe you should think about working someplace that'll do that for you. Um, it's easy for me to sit there and say that, but if I'm trying to feed my family and keep my kids in college, and this is the only job I have, I'm probably not going to like punch a hole in the bottom of that boat. Exactly. And know that, right. It's not going to be necessarily greener anywhere else. Now that doesn't mean you shouldn't be out there making contacts, like staying on, let's say LinkedIn, making sure that when that call comes in at, you know, the nine nine fifteen meeting comes on, you know, your schedule with your boss on a Monday morning. Yeah. And the boss says, This is a really hard conversation, right? Um, when that happens, because it, it used to not happen as often, but look around, right? It's yeah. there there is no sense of a guaranteed job for life people listening here, get out there and make sure you cover your ass and stay relevant within the industry, not just within your organization. So how do people do that? If you are something, I you and I both work with a lot of people in classes and, and they're not running mm -hmm. around trying to make a name for themselves, speaking at conferences, they're just trying to get their job done and get home to their kids. Mm-hmm. How do they maintain relevancy? Instead of going home and turning on TikTok or turning on YouTube or turning on the TV, if that even exists anymore, um, instead of self-medicating in various ways, right? 
And if you're doing that and you need professional help, get it. But start learning. Continue learning something. Read something relevant and start having a discussion with somebody about it. That's a very small change that can make a huge difference for people. And this just went in a direction I hadn't planned for, but I'm really glad that it did. So I've been having a lot of conversations with people recently, people that you know, are engaged in the same way that you and I are engaged in the community and creating things and learning constantly, trying to learn the new things. Um, you're driven by certain things. I'm driven by certain things. I know that both of us spend a lot of non-work time on work stuff because it's a passion. It's something that gets you out of bed and like you want to go learn these new things. Um, there are so many people out there who don't do that. I mean, I have some friends who, you know, I mean, I'm 53. They'll be like, yeah, I'm just trying to run down the next seven years and then I can retire. I'm like, oh my God, that is so depressing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. How, what advice do you have for people that are in a situation where work is, is just a thing they try to get through? You know, like you're talking, maybe they're self-medicating with TV or whatever it is, but right. that is the thing they have to do to recover to make it through another day. Um, mm-hmm. How do you how do you flip the script on that into a thing where I have a field that I work in, a profession that I'm a part of, and things that I want to learn for myself, so that I show up at this company every day to work for myself? They just pay me to do that here. I would say that most people don't want to do that. Okay. They choose not to do that, right? They're on a hamster wheel. Heck, we, we're we all on a hamster wheel. It's not they. But if you, whoever is listening to this, is on a hamster wheel and you're just like continually going and going and going and thinking, oh, I'm going to be able to get off this thing and retire in you know X years, you're dreaming. Well, then what are you going to do, right? Exactly. (laughs) There's only so many episodes of Matlock you can watch. Um, (laughs) You're going to need to have... So so maybe that's part of it, too, is if you have outside interests, how can you use that to spark things you can learn at work? I guess, for me, everything I do informs everything else that I do, and I'm always trying to see the connections between those things. And let the moments teach me stuff I can bring into other stuff that I'm doing. Maybe maybe it's just being open to that. Yeah, and Dave, we have to. We are modeling that for other people. Yeah. Most people listening to this, if they've even gotten this far in this podcast episode, <laughs> thank you. If you have, <laughs> yeah, right. If you have, like, send send us a shout out. <laughs> um, because. What we are trying to do is model the behavior, just like as a servant leader or even as somebody in senior leadership, what you do, the actions that you show every day, roll downhill. And you you are an amazing example of that. I mean, that the, the NBC Friday stuff and everything else that you do... Um, does seem very intentionally to me at least intentionally done to set example as well as create the space that you want to live and work in is that fair to say yeah and it's not 
just talking about it. It is doing it. And Dave, just to like everybody else here listening to this, I wake up sometimes and I'm like, I just want to hit the snooze button or just not even get up. Yeah. And and that forward momentum, right? That that requires a lot of work and you've got to be intentional about it if you want to continue doing that. Otherwise, get on the hamster wheel. It's just a different one. Well, I think there's all all of us probably have days where we do climb on the wheel, but I think developing the ability to recognize like, oh, I'm on I'm on the wheel again. I need to get off of this and find the thing that sparks me so that I actually care about what I'm doing. I'm learning from what I'm doing, or I'm, I'm gaining some skills that I can use in the future. Like you're not just watching reruns all the time. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, let's, so let's, um, we talk a little bit about one of your side projects. That is a great example of something you're doing Mm -hmm. that, is of interest to you and interest to everybody who's going to be working for the next 20 years or more. Um, can you talk about your AI project? Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's this huge resurgence right now of, Ooh, right. There's, there's a new shiny object and this new <laughs> shiny object out there is, you know, chat GPT. Yawn. Now I'm saying that because, Pretty much anything that you do with OpenAI, any chat bot that you go to or chat GPT front end that's thrown up there right now, all uses the OpenAPI 50 lines of code that basically just have a bunch of if-then statements, okay. AI, to um, you know scrape stuff off the internet and, and give you something. Yikes. What are you using it to do for you? So one of the one of the things that, that we're working on right now is if you go to implementing scrum.ai, we've got a, a beta program up there right now where we've taken that basically open AI code and instead of just using the internet, what we're doing is actually training it with Scrum and Agile specific tokens or information. And as you feed in new questions to this bot, if the answers come back incorrectly, you can help train it so that future answers are even more relevant to this domain. It's an, it's, it's an example right now. It's something that we're trying. Is it perfect? Uh-uh. But so, one of the things that we've got to get good at is figuring out like where does all of this stuff that it's spitting out come from? Okay. So what what would be an example of of a kind of thing I could ask it? Uh you can go in and ask it, you know, what is the scrum framework? Uh, what's the difference? What are the differences between a scrum master and a product owner? You could probably, and I haven't done this yet. Yeah. Uh, run multiple choice questions through this and see what kind of answers that you get. Okay. So does it, does it give like attribution as well, or is it all just pumped in there? 
Right now, we don't have attribution. It's on the on the list of things to uh, to do. But what we are doing is training it with things like the Scrum Guide. Okay. So the source, right, of basically Scrum, uh, and making sure that the answers or what are called tokens, really, and in that world, um, are relevant to the correct answers. Okay. What I think is going to be really helpful in the future is when any of these chatbots, ours or anybody's, can cite where yeah. the information came from. I think that would be really amazing. I know like one of the things that I often struggle with is people ask, well, where did a thing come from? Where did deep come from? Where did the three pillars come from? Why is the team size what it is? Um and in some cases, I've been able to research that stuff and find it. In other cases, I just, I don't even know. I mean, it's been lost. Um, and as some of the founders of Agile kind of age out, we might lose some of that stuff forever. We might not remember where it came from. Yeah. I mean, it's already, you know, death by a thousand cuts already. Yeah. It would be really cool if you could build a virtual Ron so that like when I typed in questions, it would just give me the answer of here's what was wrong with your question. And yeah, we still have Ron around <laughs> to do that. Right now, so. <laughs> that would be really cool. Um, and it's Ron Jeffries. So yeah, sorry. <laughs> Apologies to Ron. Um, <laughs> so I, down the road, right? Let's say that stuff like this takes off down the road. I'm in an organization and I've got questions about, is this project, should I use Scrum or Kanban? Um, it could help me understand my choices there and the pros and cons of each option. Mm -hmm. And I don't think any AI, quote unquote, is going to replace human beings. Yeah. We still have to understand the context from the answers that it spits out. Because it spits out really, really good answers that are complete garbage. Also, even if they're garbage, if it's spitting it out from the sources, the humans that receive the information could understand where that came from and then hopefully make an intelligent choice based on their situation with the source information and understanding where it came from. That is a good hope. That's okay. like saying, you know, uh, JIRA is going to solve all of my project management problems. Well, whole no, it just makes you agile. That's all it does. <laughs> there you go. That's funny. <laughs> He's well, kidding. That's, yeah, I'm I am, hoping. But I am. But there's a lot in in a tool like Jira that has the gives you the opportunity to see things you might not see otherwise. Correct. Um, and I guess it's the same with the AI is that it can show us things. It's what we, and we're still the weak point in that equation. Once mm -hmm. we get the data in the AI right, it's still the humans that are the weak point because mm -hmm. we're the one making the choices. Yep. We do okay. have the responsibility to do that. So down the road, an executive who is unwilling to make a decision about priority could ask, what is the impact of this, of not making the choice? That might be a way to show it to them, right? Sure. I mean, you could probably go in and say, you know, prioritize this product backlog for me. But you have to tell it how to do it, right? Actually, okay, so let's say if you had all the cost of delay data, 
you could ask the AI, what should I do first? And it would tell you based on cost of delay, right? It could calculate that. And then you could have a conversation and decide whether or not that was the right course of action to take. Yep. But again, based on all the information that whatever backend has been set up, it could still yeah. spit out really, really good sounding buzzword compliant crap. At the end of the day, you still got to make a decision. Well, and if all the measurements used to figure out the cost of delay are all relative numbers assigned by some individuals, whatever their gut tells them, then all this technology is really just going to show us the same problem we, we already have, which is it's hard to figure out what the most important thing to do is. Yep. And this is why we should keep very short iterations, deliver something of value at the end of each sprint or iteration, get feedback. And then use the retrospective to get better as a team to do this going forward. Yeah. This looks great, man. I appreciate you taking time out for this. Um, so let's just say that I'm someone in an organization and I know that my management needs help and they want to reach out to you. What's the best way for them to do that? Uh, I don't really hide on the internet. So if you just type in Michael Vistos. I to say, I don't really have a way for people to contact me. I'm... Right. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> no, just uh, go ahead and type in Michael Vistos. Uh, one of the things you could also do is uh, go to firstteam.mvistos.com and it will bring you to a write-up around the concept of the first team uh, and some explanation around that with... Patrick Lencioni. And that will be a great thing to show to management to help them understand how they can Absolutely. improve things. Okay. Because he has a video on there and, I, and I've embedded the video in there for, for him uh, that really, really does a good two minute overview of what this thing is all about. Yeah. Cool. Mike, thank you very much for, for doing the interview and for also for all the other stuff you do, especially the audio version of the scrum guide, which I send to all my students before the classes. Um, you are a great living example of the kind of stuff that we're all trying to help people see their way to. So well, I'm, I'm appreciative you of you making time for this. Thanks for having me here, Dave. Yep.